Hello and welcome to The Five Buyer, your bi-weekly source of rapid fire board game reviews. This episode we get a little old school with Mason and Raj holds the guy Mike gets mysterious with Shadows in Kyoto and Ruth introduces Welcome To. I divulge inside Escape the Dark Castle and Sarah delves into Root. So sit back, pour yourself a nice cuppa and enjoy. I almost didn't back Root. Designed by Cole Worley and published by Leader Games in 2018, Root is an asymmetrical game of combat and area control, based on the COIN, or Counterinsurgency, series of games about guerrilla warfare. I'm not a war gamer. I'm not into combat games, so I thought Root might not be for me. But the premise, an area control game about adorable woodland creatures fighting for control of the forest, sounded so fun. And the level of asymmetry was so intriguing, and the cartoony art style by Kyle Farron was so darn cute. And I am so glad I did back it, because Root is everything I'd hoped for, and then some. Like Leader's previous game, Vast the Crystal Caverns, Root is extremely asymmetrical. There are some commonalities, some rules that apply to all players, but your turn structure and means for getting points are quite different depending on which character you play. For instance, the Marquise de Cat is the forest colonizer, with an army of warrior cat meeples who battle to control forest clearings so she can build her woodland industrial complex. At the other extreme is the Vagabond, a single raccoon meeple. He collects items, slips in and out of the forest, and gains points by building either friendly or hostile relationships with the other characters. To me, games are at their best when rules and theme intersect to create a narrative that feels real. That's why my favorite character in Root is the Woodland Alliance, aka the Mice. The Alliance are the guerrilla warriors of this forest. They collect cards that represent support among the populace, and use those cards to place sympathy tokens on the board. If any other character enters a clearing with a sympathy token, they have to give a supporter to the Alliance from their own hand, because the creatures in that clearing are with the insurgents and resent having armies march through their turf. If the Alliance has enough supporters, they can revolt, removing all enemy meeples and tokens from a sympathetic clearing in one fell swoop. A revolt is so dramatic. I have this mental image of cute little field mice teaming up out of the ground and wiping out the enemy, like Patrick Swayze's gang jumping out of holes in Red Dawn. Sometimes I'm tempted to shout wolverines as I do it, but I kind of don't think mice would shout wolverines. Before Root came out, I had played Vast, and to be honest, I didn't have a good experience with it. The learning curve was so steep, it felt like four people sitting there trying to learn four different games at the same time. I think this is a common problem with heavily asymmetric games, and Root addresses it really well. There are two rulebooks, a learn-to-play book to get you started, and a more dense rules reference. I wish more games did this, since rulebooks serve wildly different purposes for new versus experienced players. There's also an optional walkthrough that guides players through their first two turns, letting you see pretty much every action each character can take. Besides that, each player gets reference cards for all the other characters to help you understand and remember what your opponents are trying to do. These player aids were a huge help to getting a handle on Root. Even something as simple as the victory point track made Root more accessible to me. In Vast, the win conditions were totally different and were tracked on individual player mats. In Root, the mechanisms for getting victory points differ, but everyone uses the same victory point track. That makes it easier to see who's winning, and to understand which actions are giving them the most benefit so you can try to block them from doing those actions. The great strength of asymmetric games is their replayability, and in this regard Root is off the chart. Everyone I've played with has talked about how they want to play again to try different characters and different character combinations. There are four characters in the base box, plus the River Folk expansion adds two new characters, plus an additional Vagabond, so you could have two Vagabonds in the same game. 
The rulebook includes recommended character combinations at all player counts, which I've been working my way through. I've played with two, three, and four players, and the expansion increases the maximum player count to six, which I am dying to try. The expansion also includes rules for co-op or solo, using an automated version of the cat called the Mechanical Marquise. I've played the solo game several times and it is hard. So difficult that I thought at first I must have been playing it wrong. I've read several different sets of house rules to make the solo game a bit less impossible, and I'll definitely try one next time. But even though I'm getting clobbered every time, I still love having the solo game as a way to learn the playstyle of each character. If I had to say something negative about Root, I really wish the forest clearings had names. You spend the game moving from clearing to clearing, placing meeples in them, and battling for control of them. Each clearing is identified by an animal, fox, mouse, or rabbit. With four of each on the board, it's common to have exchanges like, I'm attacking you in the fox clearing. Which clearing? That one? No. The fox clearing. No, not that one. The other fox. Naming each clearing would have eliminated that confusion. But this is a tiny criticism of a great game. Root has so much to offer, after eight plays I feel like I've only scratched the surface. Root is ambitious, it lives up to its promise, and it's just fun. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not leading a violent uprising of the mice, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about Escape the Dark Castle, the storytelling cult game designed by Alex Crispin, Thomas Pike and James Shelton, with artwork by Alex Crispin and published by Themeball Games. It's a wonderful play game with an approximate 20 to 45 minute duration, depends on number of players and how your game goes, and as I discovered, it can be over very, very quickly. I received Escape of the Dark Castle to review prior to the Kickstarter launch for their expansion packs, and I was really happy to play it. It had been on my radar for a while, and I was drawn to its cool, monochromatic, grim fantasy appearance, and I liked the idea of a storytelling game with some vintage vibes. I thought it had an old-school RPG feel in a card game form, and it was bound to be pretty cool. As it happens, I was right, and after playing many solo games and a cult game, I was convinced enough to back an expansion pack myself. However, it is a tricky one. Dark Castle is a straightforward cards and dice game, where players follow 15 random chapter cards ending with the boss, dealing with all sorts of ghastly goings on along the way. Chapters mostly involve dice combat or decisions about fleeing the scene or staying put to fight it out with horrible underworld creatures, of which there are many. You are armed with your character, or two characters in a solo game, and their corresponding die. Characters have various values of three traits, strength, cunning and wisdom, and whether you're playing solo or a group, you have to carefully choose the right blend of characters to progress within the story. You fight creatures by attempting to roll the symbols on their chapter cards to remove them. If and when you do so, the creature has been beaten, but unless you roll the block as well as a symbol, the creature will always defend, and their value hit points are deducted from your health points. Health varies depending on the number of players in the game, but if it dwindles before the story is finished, you lose. I'm yet to win a game, and in my experience, it's very tough to beat. You are helped somewhat by the item cards that some chapter cards provide, and you can also receive them after slaying a creature. Items give you opportunities to negate damage and increase your health, ignore an effect and so on, and trust me, those rotten cheese wheels come in very handy. I think enjoyment of the solo game depends on your own tastes. Whilst I personally enjoy the solo, I believe the game is probably best for group play, but I wouldn't discount it as a solo game. I just think the full experience is better achieved with the group. It's supposed to involve helping each other out, group despair and joy, but rolling solo and rolling a lot does feel a little lonely sometimes. But again, it was still enjoyable enough to warrant future plays and back an expansion pack because I'm actually really okay with minimal interaction and my own company sometimes. A Facebook friend recently told me he plays solo games with a castaway-style Wilson Bowl, which I thought was brilliant. 
and I'm sure most people know this reference without having watched the Tom Hanks movie, but he's a football companion that Tom Hanks personifies to get him through his Lonely Island days, and he's also gone a bit mad. I think I'm definitely going to join my friend in getting a gaming ball buddy. Back to Dark Castle. What I did like was not having to perform actions for an AI. You're either taking their damage value or not if you've rolled a block. So that is a huge relief because I find performing AI actions in smaller scale games to be a drag. I think the fun lies with players indulging in some spooky atmospheric fun, cheering each other on and scheming as one. An aspect I thoroughly enjoyed the co-op. But you can also manage it somewhat solo. It's definitely a game I would recommend making atmospheric and decorating the playing area, lighting candles or something to that effect and putting on a soundtrack which Theme Bomb will actually provide upon the kickstart fulfilment with mp3s or a cassette tape the latter i love because it really lives up to the vintage vibe of the game as it is a storytelling game where you're rolling dice without modifying it boils down to a simple game with an rpg feel and you can pick it up and play it whenever you like and it's a one-shot deal in a fairly short time frame with no building characters or gm the nice thing is the next time you pick it up the story will be different and i really like that I appreciate that whilst the mechanics are so ludicrously simple, the gameplay is still good fun and the focus on the story is fantastic. The designers obviously put much care and consideration into this, so each chapter card stands well alone, presents its own set of opportunities and drawbacks, promotes team play and interaction, and they'll make sense together in any combination, which is why the expansions of adventure packs have been introduced in order to keep things fresh in a grimy, murky sort of way. The cool thing about this is that it can just continue on and on, and I can see this becoming a pretty solid line. Despite Dark Castle's detractors, it has been insanely popular, and the recent Kickstarter was really successful. I think the artwork and style is a huge part of this, and whilst I've heard mixed opinions, as in some people hate the sketchy, etchy, imperfect illustrations, many people love it, myself included. The artwork is very me, I love how some of it borders on black metal or like an 80s hair metal LP cover, and manages the fine line between horrific and gross out pretty well. Whilst there are some extremely unpleasant creatures, there hasn't been anything too heinous or depictions of anything offensive to the eyeballs, but that's not to say they might not play on those factors somewhere along the line. The drawback seems to be mainly in the solo game. It is a lot of dice rolling and failing miserably, and I've played solo games ranging from 5 to 30 minutes. Because the chapters are 15 random cards, you don't know how your game is going to go, and these aspects could infuriate some people. It may not be the game for everyone, but despite a couple of solo drawbacks, I'm still a huge fan, and I can't wait for the Kickstarter to fulfil. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my website, shinyhavemeeples.com, or my YouTube channel, shinyhavemeeples, or follow me on Instagram, where I'm shinyhavemeeples. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Raj. In 1988, one of the Spiel du Jahr recommended titles was a Ravensburger card game called Holzdergeier. It's a little bidding game that designer Alex Randolph had been developing on and off for decades. It's been republished under a dozen different titles all over the world in the last 30 years, mostly with cute or weird animal themes. Today I'm going to tell you where you can buy a cheap copy of this wonderful game you've never heard of, as well as how to make your own custom copy or even play a variant of it with a common deck of playing cards. I picked up a $1 copy of the only non-animal themed version at the thrift store last month, the 1995 Winning Moves edition, titled Raj. In a letter that came along with this version, Alex Randolph gives some insight on the theme and the game's development. I'm reading the letter in full in a special bonus feature segment, which you can find on our website, 5bygames.com. So, what is Raj? Well, very simply, everyone has the same set of cards in hand numbered 1 to 15. There are 15 face-down points tokens, or cards depending on the version. Every hand lasts 15 turns. Flip over a points tile, everyone picks a card from their hand, puts it face down on the table. Simultaneous reveal, and the high card wins the hand. Everyone discards the card they played, and you flip over another tile. 
So what are you actually bidding on? Well, the points tiles are numbered 1 through 10, and negative 1 through negative 5. So there are a total of 40 possible points in every hand. We typically play the short game to 71 points, but the long game is 121. When you flip a positive points tile, the high card takes it. When you flip a negative points tile, though, the low card takes it. But what about the ties, Mason? There must be ties all the time in this game. Well, there are, and they're the source of some of the most fascinating emergence in Raj, especially at higher player counts. All ties cancel. Everyone is tied. You flip an additional points tile and bid again. So here's a quick example of how that might play out. In a three-player game, we're bidding on the eight-point tile. I bid a 12, Karen bids a 3, and Megan also bids a 12. Because the two high bids cancel, Karen wins by default. So you're constantly trying not only to remember which cards other players have already used, but you're also second-guessing what every other player at the table might bid and trying not to get your bid cancelled. And the two-player game, which we've been playing almost daily since we bought it, bids can't cancel, so you always just flip another tile. It took me about five games to figure out that it might be to my advantage to take some strategic losses dependent on the order that the points tiles come out in. I might bid my lowest and let Megan take a higher points tile and then try to run the middle value tiles. I might really go hard after all the low value tiles and avoid the negatives and still win. It's absolutely possible to take the most tiles and still lose the hand, or to blow an early lead by making one bad bid. Because a hand only takes about five minutes, and you're playing at least four hands in the short game, you can always recover, reset, and still make a big comeback. Raj is somewhere between a bidding and trick-taking game in some ways, and that's probably why I love it so much. Because the bidding is blind and simultaneous, and everyone plays on every turn, there's no bluffing, no downtime, and at no point are you required to guess if another player is lying, which I like very much. Raj is another one of those games I love, with minimal components, negligible rules overhead, and high emergence. It's also a hidden but trackable information game with a randomized input. The tiles come out in a different order every time, but you know that everyone has the same cards as you. If you are a card counter, I suppose you could keep track of what everyone at the table has played, but you could also just shuffle up your 15 cards and flip one over each turn as a party game. Raj just works no matter what your skill level. On to buying. This one is a touch odd. So there's not currently a North American printing of Raj. But you can, right now, buy a copy of the current Amigo version of Holzdergeier off Amazon.de for $11 shipped to the US. There are also about 20 used copies available right now in the Board Game Geek Marketplace if you'd like one of the mini vintage editions. If you've never bought anything from BGG before and feel like you need help, feel free to at me and I'll help you through it. If you want, you can also just make your own copy of it. So option one is the fancy version. You'll need a copy of Rummy Cube and a Rage Deck, which I discussed back in episode 12 of the 5x when I covered the game Stiekeln. You'll need cards numbered 1 through 15 for each player from the Rage Deck, and from the Rummy Cube, 1 through 10 in black tiles and 1 through 5 in red tiles for the negatives. Option two is just to play a modified version of Raj using a standard deck of cards. Separate the deck by suit, giving one suit to each player. The extra suit will be the points cards. Player hands are ace high, and the points cards are 2 through 10, with the face cards as negative 2 through 5. So the jack is minus 2, queen is minus 3, king is minus 4, and the ace is minus 5. That way you still end up with 40 points per hand. This is probably harder for new players than just buying a real copy of it, but I'm almost positive that 99% of our listeners have a deck of playing cards at hand to try it out. If you want to play with a larger group, just use a second deck. So you can also play Raj on the exceptionally weird and outdated but highly useful website, boardspace.net. There are instructions on the site, but there's a fairly high barrier to entry if you're not familiar with trying to play abstract games on the internet 20 years ago. Please do not at me for help with this site. I don't exactly understand it either. So who should buy or just play Raj? People who love bidding games. People who like trick-taking games. People who like low-conflict games. People who like making tactical choices. People who like to be engaged on every single turn. 
and people who like slightly weird old card games. I give Raj 15 out of 15 ugly cartoon vultures hit over the head with a cricket bat. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. And don't forget to check out our website, 5bygames.com, for my bonus segment, a 1995 letter from legendary games designer Alex Randolph. Shadows in Kyoto is set in 1927 Japan, at the hypothetical end of a 60-year struggle between the Oni Waban, who are loyal to the old ways in the quote-unquote last shogunate, and the government forces of the Meiji Emperor. It's also a prequel to Hana Makoji, which was covered by Ruth in episode 18. So, despite my internet research and consulting people from Japan, it seems that while this theme is interesting, we're going to have to file it under likely fictional. Which as a history buff is a touch disappointing. But props to Wayman Ling, Emperor S4, and Deepwater Games for a fun theme at least. The art by Maishirli leans in heavily on that theme and does an excellent job of it. I was a little concerned that it was a little bit male gaze, despite the artist being a woman, as they're all pretty young women in skirts, and I'm leery of that. But my wife and daughter both love the art, and the board and cards are very nice looking. My only art and component issue has been the malformed meeple, but Deepwater Games took care of that very quickly. Casting Shadows in Kyoto as a battle between two sides makes total sense though, because this game is essentially a riff on the classic two-player game Stratego, just greatly improved, but we'll get to that later. Shadows in Kyoto is played on a 5x6 grid with 6 player meeples each numbered 0-3. to Your goal is to get your 3-star or your 2-star meeple to your opponent's side of the board. Combat is mostly the same as in Stratego, as in an attacking piece wins the combat if they are of equal to or greater value than the piece in the space they are entering. And like in Stratego, the level 0 piece beats the highest level of 3, but nothing else. But after that, the game starts to diverge. In Shadows in Kyoto, all movement is dictated by the six cards you've drawn from your side's two decks. To move, you must play a card that matches the color of the space you wish to move to. So you can't just move any piece you would like. After you've played a card, it goes to the discard, and you must choose either a new location card for regular movement, or a tactics card. Tactics cards allow you to break some rules. Defend lets you attack your opponent's piece by moving sideways backwards, or back at an angle one space. This is helpful if your opponent has snuck a piece back past your own. Charge lets you move one forward, or forward at an angle, and then move your opponent's piece back one space. Tunnel lets you move horizontally. Swap lets you swap position of two meeples in the same row or column. And Bait lets you set a trap for when your opponent enters a space of a certain color building on it. Using these is considered the basic game, and adds some additional thought to how you will play offensively or defensively. They also let you do fun things like push a non-starred meeple into your opponent's back row and then swap them out for a starred meeple that you have left back near the base in order to win the game. Don't tell, but that's my favorite tactic to win. This sometimes works because taking non-starred meeples is dangerous, so sometimes it's best to let a meeple go through. If you ever capture three of your opponent's non-starred meeples, you automatically lose the game. But if you capture both of their star meeples, then you win. So it's complicated to decide if and when you want to take a meeple. Just blindly taking anything is usually the way to defeat. At this regular rules level, despite a 10 plus age rating, I found my 7 year old really enjoys playing against me with minimal help. But if that's not enough for you or your regular opponents start falling into predictable patterns, you can add in the charisma and equipment cards. Charisma cards are just characters you play as, each of whom gives you a different ability. Each side has three available Charisma cards designed specifically for them, labeled Easy, Normal, and Hard for how difficult their abilities are to use effectively. There is also one neutral card that comes with the game that either side may choose, though the government gets first dibs on using her. 
Each side also has three equipment cards that you pick up when one of your agents is captured. This allows you a few specific one-time abilities based on which side you are playing. Both these and the Charisma cards increase the complexity of the game, though my 11-year-old still loves it at this level. And that's the basics of Shadows in Kyoto. It's not an overly complex game. Like its forebearer, a lot of the gameplay comes from knowing your opponent and what type of player they are. Are they reckless? Reserved? Tricky? Do you or they push up one piece at a time, or multiple pieces together? And how much do you put into a double bluff, because you know that they know what kind of player you are? My wife in these games can really read me like an open book. It's not even funny. That's why we kind of retired Stratego ages ago, but Shadows in Kyoto has breathed some fresh life into this style of head-to-head -head game for us. So if you have any further questions or comments about Japan, you should probably ask someone else. But if you have further questions or comments about Shadows in Kyoto, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a game I actually purchased earlier this year when it was only available in Europe, but I'm now thrilled to see available on this side of the pond. Published by Blue Cocker in France, the 2018 release Welcome 2 was then later brought to the United States through a partnership with Deepwater Games. Benoit Turpin has created a new star in the popular something and right genre, in this case with the random input being provided by flipped cards rather than the more typical rolled dice. Accommodating anywhere from one player to as many people as you have sheets, the game lets participants lay out suburban neighborhoods in an effort to create the most idyllic 50s place to live, all enhanced by the charmingly vintage-style art of Anne Heidsick. To get started, each player is given a writing implement and a sheet that has three streets of suburban home plots. They'll complete the neighborhood on their sheet by writing house numbers on empty plots to represent houses being built. Just like in real life, house numbers must ascend as you continue down the street, although on Welcome 2 it's okay to skip a sequential number here and there. Players will also use bonus actions to build fences, poles, and parks to make their suburb more appealing and to increase the value of some of their homes. Although if the house numbers available on a turn don't fit a street plan, they may have to use their bonus action instead to adjust the numbers or even to squeeze a second house of the same same number onto a street. Once one player has managed to fill all of their houses, to complete the three city contracts dealt at the beginning of the game, or has failed to place a number three times, then the game's over for everyone, and all the points are added up in the lower half of each sheet to determine which is the best neighborhood. To generate the random selection of options for each turn, Welcome 2 uses a deck of 81 double-sided cards. One side of each card has a house number between 1 and 15, while the other side shows one of the six possible bonus actions. During setup, the deck is split into three equal piles, number side up, and then the top card of each is flipped over next to its pile. This results in three combinations of a number and an action for players to choose from. After they write in the house number they've chosen, they can then use the bonus action of its paired card. The top card of each pile is then flipped over again, generating three more piles of cards to choose from, and so on for the rest of the game. Having multiple sets of cards to choose between means that players can go in vastly different directions despite playing from the same deck of options. And as the number side of each card has an icon in the corner showing what action will be available when it's flipped over, canny players are able to look ahead to the next round when weighing up their options. I love the way Turpin has managed to take a single deck of cards and make it generate so many options and so much strategic strategic decision-making, and it's always fun to watch your opponents curse when two juicy combinations come up at the same time, especially if you have a better idea of what you need. 
The game plays in just 25 minutes or so, regardless of player count, as everyone plays at the same time. This does mean that it tends to be a game of everyone staring at their own sheet, but the fact that the end game is triggered by one person reaching one of three conditions means that there is a little bit of a race element to play. In fact, each time a player announces they've finished a contract, or that they can't place a number, everyone immediately perks up and pays attention, since it means things are moving towards the finish. Plus, the first player to complete one of those three contracts actually gets more points than anyone else who does it later. So somebody claiming a contract can mean that another player just had their plans become a lot less valuable than they thought. I really love games that let me build something as they progress. And so at the end of Welcome To, I like seeing how my neighborhood compares to my opponents. Maybe one person went really heavy on poles, whereas I seem to have a ton of parks. Plus, the game encourages you to name your suburb, leading to many amusing and often inappropriate names that would never make it past an actual planning committee. And adding to the satisfaction of viewing your final product is the fact that the player sheets are printed on lovely thick paper and are full of color and charm. In fact, the whole game is beautifully produced, although the player aids are a little thin, and from a quick comparison with a friend's American copy, I can say that any differences between my French edition and it are minimal. Welcome 2 has generated a lot of hype. It's even had people racing through the aisles of conventions to grab a copy. But after having taught and played the game quite a bit, I do have to say that, well, it's a damn good game. It's a quick teach. It has a bit more complexity going on than many roll and writes, which makes me much more likely to want to play it. And every time I do play, I find myself wanting to immediately play again. The game also has an expert variant, so if you get a little bored of it, you can always try that, which has players drafting their card combinations. Since I keep introducing new people to the game, I haven't even considered breaking it out, but it seems interesting. The game itself is well worth trying. And if you're curious, then I would suggest heading over to the OneTars YouTube channel. She's streamed multiple play-alongs of the game, letting people play without having a copy, and those videos are a great way to get a feel for how it plays. Just don't blame me when you immediately start looking to buy a copy anyway. Now I'm off to pack for a weekend away, and I will be taking Welcome too. But if you want to talk more about how to plan the perfect neighborhood, then please look for me at Sequential gamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five By Games or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Five By Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to the Five By on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and don't forget your five-star reviews. Or you can follow all of our links at fivebygames.com. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.